Bandwidth for this week in photography is brought to you by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This Week in Photography is brought to you by Drobo. Find out how you can get your own Drobo at drobo.com slash twip. Hey, everyone. Yes. Yes, I've taken over again. I've... I've, I've... Ah. <laughs> this is Alex, and uh, and uh, we have the uh, the usual suspects here from Seattle, Ron Brinkman. Hey, Ron. Hey, everyone. Good to be here. From New York, Steve Simon. Hi, guys. Great to be here again. And from Gig Harbor. Notice how I'm I'm, I'm moving the I'm, I'm adding the Seattle accent. Gig Harbor. There's not really any any accent there, is there? No, there isn't. We're we're just we're just we're just Gig Harbor, and I'm glad to be here, even though I'm in Gig. Harbor, not Gig Harbor. 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 So, uh, and they're more like a family guy than anything, you know. <laughs> uh, we have a winner for the linking contest, Scott Jones. Uh, Scott, can you fill us in on Scott? Well, I just, you know, my little randomizer went through and searched the referral logs, and Scott's link came up first, and I went and verified the link, and sure enough, he met the eligibility requirements, so he got about $1,000 worth of stuff, um, less you owing him a copy of Aperture, and uh, that's it. Yes, no, we're getting that Aperture right out to him. So, uh, and then we have a new... We already already sent him most of the prizes. He already sent me an email saying he can't believe it because he never wins anything. And he won. Well, he made up for it. And it was a lot of prizes. So we've got a, a, a new linking contest already underway. Uh, the, the, the grand prize is a copy of Photoshop CS4. Woo-hoo. Yeah, which is a huge upgrade. So I think it's going to be a, a really a welcome to whoever, uh, whoever hap- happens to win. Uh, so also in the news, we've got uh, TWIP um, taking uh, photo. We're taking photo products of the year nominations. Scott, can you give us a little more information? Yeah, we're just looking for cameras and software. So if it's photo software, such as, you know, a plug-in, of course, Aperture, Lightroom, Photoshop, Photoshop Elements, Photoshop Express, uh, you know, any of those kinds of software programs. It doesn't matter if it's well-known or not. Nominate your favorites. Nominate your favorite camera. I will say right off the bat, I find amusing, amazing, and somewhat telling the number of nominations for the Canon 5D Mark II, a camera which simply is not available for sale anywhere in the world. <laughs> but it's so exciting. We're so excited about it. But well, just to uh, listen, just now, because I know what I will be accused of since I switched to Nikon, let me make it clear on the record. I have pre ordered this camera. Okay? I'm paying for it. I'm getting one. I'm going to be an owner. That said, what if it doesn't work? What if it ain't oh, like you're such an icon picket. I can't believe you. You're such an icon. <laughs> so, so, so people are nominating a camera they've never used. I just think that's interesting. It shows you an awful lot about the photography business. <laughs> it was a it was a good year for products, though, wasn't it? I mean, it yeah. feels it like there was I mean, a lot. And, and some of the other cameras being nominated: the LX3, the D3, the D300, the Canon, um, the new Canon Rebel. Uh, you know, lots of nominations, but uh, you know, there is. It's going to be tough to pick. Yeah, yeah. I was I was in B and H the other day, and I saw what I've never seen one like this before. It was a hat umbrella that you put on your head that sort of covers you and your camera. <laughs> now, I'm not sure exactly, you know, if that's going to make the fashion week here in New York. So, is it like an oval that goes out in front of you? 
it's it's sort of like a cap that goes on, and it, yeah, it's just a real umbrella that that goes over you. You have to and be I extremely think, confident to wear that. <laughs> oh, man. I think you're right. I, I want to put together an umbrella that slides into the flash shoe. Mm. <laughs> Actually, that be, yeah, that's a great idea. Someone, you, anyway, you should have patented a, that just, before you talked about it. Just get a rain jacket and move on. Anyway, that, we're taking nominations for a couple of more days over at twipphoto.com. So, also in the news, of course, uh, speaking of the EOS uh, 5D Mark II, it is uh, supposed to be on schedule to ship at the end of November. That's this month. Hopefully, uh, we'll be able to see it. Twenty six ninety nine for the body only. And uh, it's going to have some standard uh, accessories uh, are planning to ship at the same time. Batteries, battery grip, Wi-Fi, transmitter, et cetera. So uh, keep your eye out for that. Uh, Scott should then hopefully have it before Thanksgiving. I will have it as soon as anybody has it. I know that. Did you sell all your, all your Canon lenses, though? Aren't you going to have to just let me borrow that camera to test it out? <laughs> Actually, I, I just, you know, I, I found laying around here a Canon 50mm f1.4 that I'd forgotten to get rid of. So I'll have at least a lens to test it with. Also, in, uh, also it's something to check out. I, I didn't realize how far Google had gone down uh, the image recognition um, uh, process. But evidently, they, re- they have, um, they're using, when you Google, it's not just looking for names that are connected. You can now... Uh, look for face recognition, photo and face recognition. Uh, so it, it, one of the options within Google is uh, to search by photo content. Um, and uh, I guess this used to be in the advanced, um, in the advanced tab, but now it is uh, much, more, much closer to the surface. Has anyone tried this? It I don't know. Where, yeah, what, I, would you, wow. what would you do? Say, show me people that squint? No, 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 no. It would be like, show me Nikola, the, the example that's shown here. We're, we're um, referring back to a, uh, this is a um, life hacker post um, but the, uh, from lifehacker.com, but they have Nikola Tesla, for instance. But the idea is that if you're looking for someone, a lot of times you're limited to looking for the, uh, looking for the actual name connected to the image, but there's a lot more images that are on the internet connected to that person if, if they're, you know, well-known. Uh, that you may not be able to, um, you know, you may not see all those images. Let so, me check this out real quick. Pam Anderson. <laughs> <laughs> it and doesn't exactly it. recognize her face. <laughs> oh, yeah, what, what picture did you upload to uh, have the pattern matching on? <laughs> or what portion? Yeah, I... I <laughs> yeah, that's... <laughs> But the, um, no, but the this, I mean, this is really pretty fascinating stuff, though. There's, uh, I just came across a website that I think it's, you know, it sells shoes or uh, consumer goods or something like that. But you can actually send it a photo of a shoe, and it will try to find shoes that look like that. So you can, you know, uh-huh. find matching similar shoes. So uh, it, it's only going to get bigger. It's, it's pretty cool. Yeah, and, and a lot of this uh, has to. Um a lot of this has to do with. I mean, I've seen we, Ron and I have probably seen more of this stuff coming through SeaGraph papers of, of, you know, really doing a lot of sampling of different structures of um, of objects and people's faces and so on and so forth. Um, and and this is this stuff has been either in the visual effects industry for a little while and it's been in security industries for a long while. <laughs> and doesn't I mean yeah definitely. But doesn't uh, doesn't Picasso actually have this functionality too in there where you can? I think it does. Yeah. Yeah, so you can tag a photo of a person, and then it will try to tag the rest of your photos where that person appears. Yeah. And that's, you know, very handy if you've you know, taken a lot of photos of a uh, you know, family gathering or a wedding or something like that. Just at least getting a head start on tagging who's in the images. Right, right. 
Also, uh, it looks like this uh, this election, uh, the election that just finished here this week, uh, was a boom for newspapers. And, and as as people who shoot a lot of photography, it's good it's good news for for us. Uh, th- there has been there was a heavy use of full front uh, front page images uh, after the Obama uh, victory. Uh, some papers doing second runs uh, to to meet the demand. Did you did you guys see a lot of this in your respective cities? You yeah. can't get a copy of the Seattle Times. Nobody was able to. I mean, some guy bought up all of them. Apparently, yeah. <laughs> Look, I bought yeah, just like ten thousand copies of it or something. <laughs> yeah, I heard like as an investment. Uh, I think it was in Bellingham where he bought like I don't know thousands of papers in hopes to to profit from it. He spent about seventeen hundred bucks, and I suppose on eBay. Apparently, New York Times now is is offering that uh, actual paper for fifteen bucks. So, I mean, it was a good investment if you went out and got it. And uh, like Buy, like any big cents, sell out at fifteen dollars. Yeah. It's a good deal. Exactly. Exactly. I bought two. I was I was sent there. So yeah, the um they uh they definitely had special runs in San Francisco. They that that were um kind of take there was and they they built a whole commemorative, you know, issue on top of the regular issue. So it was uh So what does that say about this paperless society? I mean, obviously people for these huge uh markers in our history still want to have that hard copy, I guess. Yeah, but you know, they're missing the boat. I I have been ready to corner the market. I've got all the Kindle versions of those newspapers. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Always one step ahead, Scott. Always one step. Well, I think that there is something to say f- for the idea that there is a um, uh, that there's a certain value to having something tangible, you know, over top of yes, it. I think there's a value to an object. Yeah, and I think that we're, we are, we're, we're getting to a point where I think general information is not as, as valuable as far as just something that's going to carry information around. But if it has, if it has something that, it, that, that redeems it, and I think that photography redeems it a lot. I mean, I think that, that's what makes these things sell. I mean, if they put out a commemorative issue uh, with all text, I don't think people would bother, right? Yeah, there's, there's definitely a resonance about objects that, you know, can't be replaced in the digital realm. I mean, you know that that paper came out on that day and, uh, you know, it's, it's special because that day was special for a lot of people. So definitely check it out. If you haven't gotten it, you might see some of them still floating around. Some of these cities still have them floating around. Uh, and, you know, you might want to pick one up. Uh, a, lot of good, uh, a lot of good images, you know, uh, no matter which side of the, of the, uh, of the uh, election you stood on. Uh, Aperture uh, is uh, releases 2.3. This is another uh, update for Aperture. Um, this is uh, supports the new cameras: the Canon 50D, the Nikon D90, the Sony A900, and the Nikon P6000. Still, no support for the Canon G10. Do we know why the, the G10 is being left out of this? No, and we don't know why the LX3 is either. But I'm just assuming that they just were too new to get it in. So. It's got this uh, Adobe Camera Raw now support LX3 Raw. Uh, not that I know of. Okay, but since I, I use some. since I use Aperture, I'm not the guy to ask. Yeah, but you have the LX3, right? So you're just I, shooting do have, I have the I have the LX3, but what I'm saying is I I use Aperture for my workflow, and I, right, while right. I, I I do use Photoshop. It's only to round trip images from Aperture, so I don't do my conversion in Photoshop. So I'm waiting for the Aperture conversion whenever that will come yep on a uh, on a sadder note uh, cecil stoughton dies at 88 he was a a um a documented the white house he's the photographer who uh, documented the kennedy white house uh, responsible for the famous photo of johnson swearing in on air force one um which was pretty 
pretty classic. So um, anyway, uh, our uh, thoughts out to his family. The uh, site of the week, who, who had the site of the week? This is suggested by a listener. This is blipphoto.com. Um, blipphoto.com is, uh, this was uh, sent in by Scott Hamilton. And it is, uh, it, it's just a, it's a daily uh, photo journal. Um, according to Scott, it, it's an online photo journal with a really good community. The site encourages people to take photos every day. It has helped me get out with my camera every day trying to take a shot. So um, I think this is a kind of an expanded version sometimes of our photo assignments, right? Yeah. yeah it looks, I, uh, it's we've cool. all talked about this at length. There's simply nothing better you can do for your photography than get out and take pictures. Right. So a great community to be part of to do this. Uh, did, did you guys see, did you guys, uh, it looks like it's just a great way to get people going, get people uh, out there. Now, speaking of that, we've got a photo si- assignment of our own. A previous winner um, is the Fairy Godmother uh, by, uh, by Dawn. Uh, Scott, can you fill us in a little bit on this? Yeah, we, we've converted our assignment to a monthly assignment because it's just becoming too much to manage otherwise. And we're only picking one winner, no runner-up. And we're really getting some incredible stuff. First of all, this was the most images we've ever looked at. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of images came in. And the theme was yellow. And Don did a great shot of, I believe, a mother and daughter dressed up, you know, in in costumes against this yellow background. And uh, it was very compelling and very, very striking. And there were lots of good images, but this is the one that won. So congratulations to Don. And our next assignment is straight lines. Straight lines, not curved lines. Straight lines. And we don't know what the, we don't know. Yeah, I know. I, you know, somebody pointed that out to me. It's sort of like saying jumbo shrimp, but hey. <laughs> the the uh, straight lines is the topic, and we are going to give away a nice prize package. We do not, you know, we do not really know for sure what's in it, but. We know that at least a subscription, a premium subscription to lynda.com, and we're going to add to it as we go through the month. We had our uh, polls come through, our last poll results. As a photographer, uh, do you like being photographed? 30% said yes, 69.8% said no. I think that's how I got into photography is I didn't want to be I didn't want to, if, if I became I'm a family that's photographer. That's 30% uh, are, are enjoying being photographed. <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, I, that, yeah that, I was like, that's how I got into yeah. this business. So Cartier-Bresson was not alone in not wanting to be photographed. And mm-hmm. there's a guy that, as a photographer, you know, was constantly you know, in demand. To, to, people wanted to get a picture of him, but he just did not like it, as most of us don't. I find it all fascinating when I when, – I don't know if, you, if you've run into a lot of this uh, in Africa, Steve, but the, uh, uh, in, when you get into the rural areas, a lot of them won't look into the camera. Have you, have you noticed that? Uh, I have to a certain extent, um, but not, I, 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 didn't re- I never really made a conscious sort of uh, notation on that, Alex, but you've, you've noticed that. Oh, it's very, it's very pronounced in, in rural Zimbabwe. Um, people, will, they'll, they'll smile and laugh just like you'd see on a regular photo, but everyone's looking in some direction other than the camera. And it's not something that's done by accident. It is definitely something that's done uh, on purpose. 
you know, that's very interesting. I, I haven't really made that that connection, but I'll I'll go back through my files and take a look. But uh, now, Alex, I, I have a, I have a suggestion. If you were to have your beautiful wife taking the picture, my suspicion is they may look more towards the camera because she. <laughs> admittedly, <laughs> admittedly, yes, it, it, it could be that it's the photographer they're avoiding. <laughs> looking away from you. Like, this guy. Don't look at him. I think the last time I was taking him, she was with me. I think maybe they were all just looking at her. I mean, that might That's very that. possible. That makes a lot more sense to me as someone your wife. <laughs> I would have to agree with that. So uh, our new uh, poll uh, coming up here is, do you visit photo exposi- uh, ex- exhibitions uh, at museums and or galleries? So A, whenever possible. Uh, B, not as much as I like. Or C, never. So um Definitely let us know. I know there's – one of the great things I think about San Francisco and I think probably in New York and other ones is just some of the great um, exhibitions that are always going on. Uh, we had Annie Leibowitz uh, in, uh, at the um, Legion of Honor a couple uh, months ago. We've got a great collection of, of African art in, uh, in uh, Moad right now. It's just um, – it's really a good, uh, a good layout here. Do you guys like going to uh, uh, exhibitions? I, you know, I remember the, the one I remember most was uh, just randomly walking around Amsterdam, and they had this huge exhibition of um, Jan Artus Bertrand photos. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the uh, the Earth from Above book that he does. Oh yeah, which oh, is just yeah. these you know these wonderful photos that he usually takes from you know low altitude planes and that kind of stuff, uh, looking down on the Earth. But I just randomly wandering around, and they had this massive outdoor exhibition where they'd blown up all these photos to, you know, about. Uh, six foot square kind of images posted around this this square and um yeah it's just you know one of those wonderful sort of memories where you come across this art randomly yeah i I think it should be kind of a tip of the week because i would probably answer not as much as i like but i tell you you know more often than not when i go see a photographic exhibition or any kind of art exhibition it doesn't have to be just photos uh, I come away inspired in some way, or I come away with some ideas that I could use to incorporate in my own work. So it, it's it's a gr- it's a great idea to try and get to these as many as you could. I find it very just uh, very calming. <laughs> I'm not I'm not sitting there working. I'm not doing a lot of other things. I'm just simply uh, you know experiencing whatever someone's ca- whatever someone captured. So it's a uh, uh, I definitely uh, highly suggest it, but let us know how you uh, approach that uh, and let and uh, go up to the poll. It's on Twip Photo. Dot com, and now we have a, a special discussion. Uh, Andy, are you uh, are you there? You bet. All right, excellent. We've got Andy Biggs, who uh, and Andy, give us a little bit of background of uh, of uh, your work. You bet. Um, I'm an African wildlife photographer, and I lead African photographic safaris and workshops all throughout, primarily sub-Saharan Africa. I do just do some uh, workshops here in the U.S., but primarily most of my work. And images are all from Africa. Um, I spend about two to two and a half months a year out on safari, uh, usually running somewhere between five, six, maybe seven safaris. Um, I work in countries that are pretty easy to explain what their what the biggest uh, attraction is, like Tanzania's Serengeti National Park, um, the the tall sand dunes of Namibia, uh, the Okavango Delta in Botswana and other locations throughout Africa, like uh, South Africa, sometimes Zambia, maybe even Kenya. I I try to rotate them around and inspire people to take their own great photographs. And uh, I just, I guess I have more of a a teacher mentality in in that I I try to live vicariously through other people. And 
seeing the smiles on their faces at the, at the end of a great day when they see something great that they've never seen before or thought possible. Now, um, do you have do you have certain any favorites uh, in these in the in uh, these different countries? Yeah, that, that's actually it's easy and it's hard to to describe. Um, to me, I think Serengeti National Park is is is, is certainly one of my favorites. Now, have you been to Ruaha, which is a little little further south? I've been to Ruaha, Salu, Katavi. Mm-hmm. I've been all throughout Tanzania, and they're all wonderful for different reasons. But I, I like to think that the Serengeti is really kind of the Super Bowl for, for wildlife because mm-hmm. you've got uh, anywhere from one and a half to three million wildebeest, depending on which researcher you're talking about or talking to. Um, you have 450,000 zebras. It's just a huge ecosystem. The mm-hmm. park is 6,000 square miles. And to put it in perspective, uh, across the border in Kenya, their Masai Mara is 600 square miles, and this is 10 times larger. And right. It's just one huge, large ecosystem. And I remember growing up watching the, the uh, Wild Kingdom on Saturday afternoons right. <laughs> as a kid, and, uh, and it, it just, it's, a, it's always a draw. Uh, Okavango Delta in Botswana is equally as amazing. Uh, well, and and one of the big things about Botswana is an, they've really gone through kind of quality over quantity. So it's a little bit more expensive to go to Botswana. Is that correct? Yeah, it's, it's more of a scarcity model. What they've done is uh, they're basically licensing out different blocks that, that uh, operators can operate their safaris in and have somewhat exclusive or exclusive access and rights to that area. But they also have to be good stewards of the land of the, and of the wildlife. And so um, as a result... There's, there's only so much supply um, as far as lodges and campsites, and there's a lot of demand. So naturally, I think the price is going to go up. It's, it's a very different model than, than most other places in Africa. Do you think it's made a difference as far as uh, how, the, um, how the land is kept? That's a really good question. I'm not sure I'm, I'm, I'm well suited to answer it, but uh, I certainly do love being out on safari and not seeing a ton of vehicles around me. Right, it's a, it's a nice private feeling. It does have a cost associated to it as well. Now, um, can you give us like a story of, of something that has really uh, surprised you? <laughs> you know, while, yeah. while you've been out shooting. Yeah, I, I just got back um, from Namibia and Botswana a few weeks ago, and we had arranged for this really beautiful picnic lunch to be had way, way out of, out in the bush someplace. And as we pulled up, it just so happened to be right next to. A watering hole, and there were about 75 elephants right next to us while we're eating this wonderful lunch. <laughs> and they're playing in the mud, crossing a river, trunks going up in the air as they swim across. It was just a magical feeling, and uh, something that was, I, I, I just, I'm surprised all the time, even though I do this for a living and I see so many things, and sometimes the small things even blow me away. And it's usually not about things like predation or uh, you know, a big cheetah chase and kill and all that, even though those are remarkable and wonderful and rare. Uh, but sometimes I, I like the, 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 the interaction between mother and babies or, or mating pair of, of, of animals. It's just – I think I just like the smaller things now. Yeah. yeah. Now, um, are there certain seasons to go on safari in, uh, in Africa? Yeah, there, there really are, and it really depends. Um, a general rule of thumb is that a wet season is typically not the best season to go. That's because they have plenty of supply of water, so they won't—they don't come to anywhere you can find. 
Yeah, they don't congregate. And the second reason is that the grass is typically a lot taller. Right. So it's greener. It's really, it can be more difficult to, uh, to locate and photograph your subjects. Um, I like the transition periods right at the end of a dry season before the rainy season mm-hmm. to hopefully get a little bit of the rain, the dark skies, the, the violent weather, but also not have to deal with the tall grass and the things that go along with it. Interesting. Yeah. I also think- like dry season. Go ahead, yes. I just wondered, um, there, the, the thing that you constantly hear about photographing in Africa is that you can only do it if you've got a 600-millimeter lens. Would you care to try to debunk that? <laughs> You're going to think I'm crazy, but I'm out there with a 6x24 panorama film camera. <laughs> so, you know, I'm probably the wrong person to ask about whether a big lens is needed. But um, I always tell people to bring the largest lens that you can afford financially, size, and weight-wise. Uh, a lot of times that's a 300 millimeter lens, like a like a, an expensive 70 to 300, or maybe a 300 prime. 100 to 400 Canon is really popular. Um, Nikon 80 to 400, very popular. A general rule of thumb is the, the less the vegetation, i.e. the open plains, the longer lens you'll probably need. So if you're out on safari and Botswana or South Africa, you can get a buy with a lot by just bringing something like a seventy to two hundred. Well, it's been it's been it's been thirty years since I've been there, but the last time I went, I looked at the images that I shot, and of course, I'm going through slides, and I was shocked at how many of the images I really liked came using you know my seventy to two hundred. Yeah, you know, I, I love it because right now I can sort through my Lightroom catalog and sort. All my images that I started capturing digitally from back in 2002 with a pair of D30s. Um, and I've noticed that most of my photographs that I show people have been taken between 200 and 300 millimeters. It's, pre- it's pretty cool. you know. I, I, but I'm trying to tell a little bit different story. I'm not trying to go for that animal right in your face, um, fill the frame type of an image. I'm trying to tell a story because... As a photographer, I'm a, I'm a storyteller, and I have to use images to tell that story. And I think part of that story that needs to be told is a sense of place. So, you know, trying to put an acacia tree that's flat top or an umbrella acacia tree in the scene. I think we've, we've seen enough images of, of big cats that it's probably different for us, or it's difficult for us to differentiate between one that was photographed in a zoo and one that's in the wild. Um, so try to include the environment in there, and you can do that with... A moderate lens you don't need a ton of lens but it depends on what you're after like if you're a birder yeah you probably do need a, a long lens i know some of my favorite photos I've, I've actually taken with a fairly not not it was a uh uh i think an 85 or something like that. but it was you know i have the uh, shots that i shot in um you know near victoria falls and the uh you know it was just of an elephant that you know, we were that we were kind of following around until it started following us and then we you know hightailed it out of there but um uh, but what made it interesting was the elephant inside of this larger uh, view of Hwangi Park, you know, and, uh, uh, and and I think that that's what made it interesting to me is much more that I have some close-up photos that I took of, of the elephant, but I, you know, those aren't the ones that I really remember. Yeah. You know, I, I try to spend a lot of time explaining to people that that another photograph that looks like everybody else's is, is pretty easy. And you have to you have to challenge yourself and to think about um, what do you want, and then you and then you use the equipment and the and the your approach to satisfy that requirement. And uh, one person told me 
was Galen Rowell back in uh, 2001. He told me, Andy, you need to figure out whether you can, you're going to tell your story with a series of photographs or you're going to go for that one single image that hangs on the wall that, you know, that kind of, that tells a story in and of itself. And he used an example of, of one photographer and saying, you know, it takes him an entire book or a National Geographic article to try to explain. And every image maybe doesn't stand on its own very well, but in con- with, with the whole body of work, it all makes sense. And, um, and so I, I kind of start off each safari by telling people, okay, think about this. Are we, are we trying to fill up a scrapbook? Are we trying to go for the wall hanger? Or what is the approach? And then try to, try to fill in your images to, to fit that. Speaking of stuff on the walls, can you very briefly tell us about your, your deal with um, Banana Republic? Oh, you bet. Yeah, that was a great campaign. Um, I was contacted earlier this year to see if I was interested in licensing images to Banana Republic so that they could use them as a backdrop for their catalog shoot. Uh, I said, absolutely. So they, they printed some of my images, like 10 by 20 feet, mounted them on the side of some office buildings and, and took some images. And <clears throat> they, they apparently liked them quite a bit, and they came back and licensed some more photographs from me. And we were able to arrive at a deal where they could print and display 13 of my images, black and white photographs and put them in all their stores around the world. And they were all put in frames. And they also put uh, at the checkout counter of every store uh, an about the, about the photographer uh, artist cards. And they printed up 100,000 of those cards for me. It wow. was great. Yeah, it was a great deal. Yeah, I was going to ask you, Andy. I mean, that's that's an incredible thing for a photographer. I suspect you probably have had uh, some other opportunities come from it. But I, I was wondering about the idea of color in black and white because I know you shoot both. Um, how how do you do you go out there sort of thinking in black and white when you're or or you just sort of look after you've shot and decide what uh, to convert? Although I, I guess you do shoot film as well. I do shoot film. In fact, I'm. <laughs> I'm actually shooting glass plates as well, but that's that's a different subject. The uh, yeah, I I actually go out there primarily looking for uh, form and gesture are the two things that I look for first, and then I back into thinking would this be appropriate for a color image or a black and white image. I the, the form is first, so let, let's let's kind of kind of talk in broad terms. Elephants walking out on an open plain look for the elephants, maybe wait for all their legs to be perfectly um, separated from each other so you don't have any three-legged elephants walking across, looking for elements in the foreground, background, basic kind of composition scenes. And then um, gesture is a part of that. Every photograph has a gesture. Try to figure out what that mood or gesture of your your main subject or supporting subjects are. And then then at the end of the day, I'll kind of look at images and think, wow, well, maybe that works great for color, and maybe it doesn't. I do shoot in digital infrared, and all the shots I shoot in digital infrared are intended to be black and white. Mm-hmm. So it kind of depends on which camera I'm picking up. And I was also curious, Andy, on a, a typical safari, I suspect a lot of time is put in you know, getting to your location and uh, being patient and waiting for things to happen. Um, uh, d- does it work mostly in spurts, or are you generally successful in kind of finding what you need and having plenty of time to, to capture uh, the various animals that you, you see? 
Yeah, well, uh, that's a really good question. I um, well, the fir- first of all, I have ample number of space in every Land Rover, so one person per row of seats, and that is never. That's, 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 it's always that way. So there's ample room. You don't have six or seven or eight people in the vehicle all saying, "Well, I wanna, I wanna go see this. I wanna go see that." You typically only have three people in a Land Rover, and uh, some, sometimes two depends on what country I'm working in. And it's we, we travel around as a very loose group, and each vehicle has the opportunity to stop, wait, and see, and, and watch for something to develop. Um, I try to encourage people to to kind of fill up their bingo card in the first couple of days. You know, get your shot of that. Get your shot of that. Get your species. Just get them down, and then flush it all out and think about how can I do it better the next time. And then slow down and slow down. And by the end of a safari, hopefully you're spending hours just on one subject and waiting for a unique behavior or waiting for a unique light to show up. Um, so it's kind of um, difficult to, to to manage expectations that you know every ten minutes you're going to see this great you know a, a buffalo being taken down by a private lions. It's just not it's not realistic. And try to get away from the what, what the imagery that we've seen on, on on television on all the major networks. I try to think about the small things, the things that are are that appear to be common, but you can easily incorporate that into a photograph that can stir your soul. Hey, hey, Andy, this, this is Ron. I'm, I'm looking at uh, a lot of these great photos while, while you're talking, and uh, I see some really cool aerial photography, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about sort of how you set that up, and is that typically part of uh, uh, some of the safaris you do, or how does that work? Yeah, it's, it's always a part of a wildlife safari. In East Africa, we're, we use hot air balloons because ah. of the, the park rules are such that um, we're not allowed to, to fly helicopters or, or low-flying airplanes. Um, and I, I love that. It's very peaceful. You fly at the same speed as the wind. Duh. <laughs> it's a hot air balloon. So it, it's actually a very stable shooting platform. And in southern Africa, like Botswana, we do use helicopters. My helicopter pilots that, that I use uh, were involved with Planet Earth, uh, the, the DVD show. And so they're very well aware on how to get the good shots without stressing out the wildlife. And that's very important because it's my understanding that most of your major networks and, and media companies have signed agreements to say that they will not show footage, still or video, that indicates that they've been stressed out because of their presence. And I think that's a really good, nice base level to explain to people, like, hey, we're going to get up in a, in a helicopter. Here's how we photograph from a helicopter. We've got some minimum shutter speed issues. Here's... Here are some techniques that'll that'll work for you, but we're not going to get too close, and we're not going to compromise the, the, the safety of you or the, of the wildlife. Um, in other words, we're not going to fly ten feet off the ground and try to get some running running hippo or something. Um, and what I like to do is have multiple flights for people. So let's say well, you go up in a, in a in a, in a helicopter for an hour, take some photographs, and you'll have another go at it the next day. Um, so you can look at your photographs, analyze them, look at them that night. How did I screw up or where can I improve on? What was successful? And try to learn from that and then apply it to the next day. 
Well, that's a <laughs> that's such a great thing because I know we've all had that experience of, oh, if I could only have done this, you come back and look oh. at it, just realize some of the fundamental things you've done, and yeah. I think that's I mean that's that's a great great thing to do is give somebody that second chance. Yeah, and and I was uh, to illustrate that point uh, a couple of years ago. I was flying in a, in, in a helicopter and. We didn't have these wonderful ISO 1600, 3200, 6400 cameras that we do today. And I was just stressed that anything over 400 was going to yield an overly contrasty and noisy photograph. Um, it was with a Canon 1D, the original 1D. And, well, you have to think about it. Would you rather have a blurry photograph that's got no noise or a noisy photograph that's clear, that, that's, that's sharp? Mm-hmm. And you, sometimes you have, to, you have to make that choice. And, but with today's cameras, you don't really have to worry about it as much because I'll probably be at ISO 800,000, 1250, maybe even uh, 1600. Just as the light starts to fade on the horizon, you get the wonderful glow, the, the warm glow, but you also lose quite a bit of light. Before so. we go, Andy, I want to just really briefly mention that uh, I'm lucky enough to have uh, received a beta copy of your new photo bag and um, thought maybe on the way out you could just tell us about your, your bag company very briefly. You bet. Thanks. Um, I started working on a camera bag a few years ago because I w- I've been disappointed with every single bag on the market. And I think all photographers can, can identify with that. <laughs> What I wanted was a bag that carried a lot of gear that didn't weigh a lot, so I could get from my home in the U.S. to Europe, wherever, without a lot of hassle. But there are some bags that do that already, but the problem is that once you get there, that bag is not appropriate to work out of. So I developed a bag that weighs only four pounds, that also has a very, very comfortable harness system that hides away, and also accommodates up to a 600 f4. Scott, I'm sorry <laughs> that your 300 to 800 doesn't fit in it, but we can maybe take a take a round two on that one. Waiting and custom, I'm waiting for the custom bag that you made. <laughs> yeah, there are not a lot of bags that hold that lens, by the way. But um, it is a butterfly design bag. It's got two different sides. I mean, how many times have you had a large bag? You put a big lens in the middle, and everything has to fit around it. Well, now I've created two different compartments. You put the big lens on one side and you still have room on the other to mount lenses onto cameras. A good example might be a five or six hundred millimeter lens on one side mounted to a camera. On the other side you might have a 70 to 200, a 24 to 70. So you can have three cameras mounted to lenses ready to shoot out of the bag. Um, It's made out of a lightweight sailcloth material. So if you were to go to any America's Cup racing yacht, you'd see this type of material on their sails. And I thought, wow, that would be really appropriate for a camera bag. It's, it's, it's strong. It's abrasion resistant. It is waterproof or water resistant. It, it's, it's great. It just costs a lot because to make a bag lightweight, you have to do one of three things. You either have to make it smaller, you have to remove features or padding, or you have to way out of it with more expensive materials. So I chose option three, and hopefully that uh, was a good choice. It looks fantastic. <laughs> so this is the, the Kiboko? Kiboko. Kiboko. Yes. Well, what's yeah. Kiboko mean? It's actually, it's actually a word in, in Kiswahili in, in East Africa, and it, it means hippopotamus, but <laughs> I just like the, the name of it. It sounds really <laughs> tribal and uh, foreign. 
and it's also easy for me to to uh, track the progress of the brand around the internet because it's not a yeah. not a well used word. Yeah, I think a, a lot of photographers dream about the perfect bag, and and you took it into your own hands from the. Now, the idea to the, the actual first one coming out, how much time had passed? Oh, boy. I was on safari back in 2005 and started talking about it then. So <laughs> that's a three-and-a-half-year journey to, to get this to market. I went through numerous prototypes. And every time we'd make a prototype, we'd find something that we could improve on even more. So originally we had a bag that was somewhere north of five pounds, and then we'd take two ounces off, and then another four here, another two there. And suddenly we ended up with a bag that's it's actually slightly under four pounds. It's three pounds, 15 and a half ounces, but um, it's easier from a marketing standpoint to just say it's, it's four pounds. Um, I am working on a smaller version of the bag that will be appropriate for regional jets, and I am working on additional attachments to these bags such as a rolling piece so you can you can take the bag through the airport on a rolling attachment take the rolling attachment off turn it into a, a backpack go do your shoot go back to the the hotel all with one bag andy i just had the bag on a bombardier jet no problem <laughs> even better even better that's great. Yeah, it, it fit right in there, and, and it also fit under the seat. So, it, you know, for those that are familiar with Moose Peterson's bags, it's essentially roughly the same size. It just has more padding, is better made. And, uh, you know, Moose went with no padding, basically. You chose to provide a little more protection, uh, and, and so your bag, I would characterize as something that comes in between Moose's no protection approach and then the overprotection, which is how I would characterize most of the other bags where they've got, you know, you, you could probably ship most traditional photo bags without a hard shell and your gear would be okay. So Yeah, and, and when, when I think about who, um, what, what the different products are on the market that compete against it, from a, from a, from a lightweight standpoint, it's probably Moose's bag, and from a uh, capacity standpoint, it's probably somewhere between a low pro Pro Trekker and Super Trekker. Well, those bags weigh 10 pounds and 13 pounds. Those are that's a lot of weight for me. If I'm photographing overseas and I'm flying an international carrier that says, "Hey, you have 10 kilos total." Well, if I the 10 kilos is 22 pounds, and if my bag weighs 50 percent of that allowance, right? That, that's unacceptable. That, that that just doesn't work. So. Um, that's, a, that's one of the big complaints that I have when I'm trying to go through, and depending on how uh, uh, strict uh, you know the the airports are, uh, you can really get yourself into a thing. I, I've actually been able to fit uh, uh, forty pounds in my jacket. <laughs> that's, that's, I've, I've been using that trick for a while. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the the um, uh, the. Uh, uh, what are the jackets? Uh, I don't have it right in front of me. Scott, you have one. Uh, Scotty vests. See, I said just a Scott and pocket. I have a Scotty vest that I can put forty pounds in. It's got lots and lots of pockets that uh, that I throw in there. But that's how I offset the problem that my bag is too heavy. Yeah. I'd love to just be able to put a bag through. I can put <laughs> I can put ninety pounds in my extra hand vest. Oh, can you? Yeah, it'll it'll hold ninety pounds of gear. Of course, you'll wow. have to go to a chiropractor after you. Yeah, after I, my problem is I can't carry it at that. <laughs> You, you just have to top off that look with one of those umbrella hats that I talked about earlier, <laughs> and you are, and you are, a fashionista. So, that Andy, it's, it's Gura, Gura Gear. Is that correct? Gura Gura Gear. G U R A G E A R dot com. Definitely, uh, definitely check that out. And then your uh, 
your site is um, uh, what's the best place? What, which which is the best site for people to go to to see your work? It's andybiggs.com, and then from there you can also click on my blog that'll take you to theglobalphotographer.com. Fantastic, Andy. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Andy. That's great. Thanks, Thank Andy. Right, yep. Thanks. Now we've got uh, we have uh, we have our Q and A coming up here in just a second. But before we get to that, of course, we have to. Uh, uh, thank our fine sponsor and good friend Drobo, who who makes us feel droopy. Droopy, are you, are, Ron? Are you now fully droopy? I'm fully droopy. Hey, hey, Steve, did you buy one of those uh, one terabyte drives to start populating your Drobo? It's going to happen soon. It's going to happen <laughs> soon. <Yeah. laughs> but it just hasn't I'm, happened I sent yet. you guys. Uh, I sent you links. Actually, I've seen some more going by. We, uh, so here's know, the deal uh, with Steve. He's just not real quick to do a lot of things. It took I him a while so. to get to Twitter. It took him a while to get his blog upset, you know, updated. And he's got a Drobo now. He's going to get it out of the box. And then he's going to put a so. drive in it. Then he's going to plug it in. Well, What's the so, I mean, rush, we've been- you guys? What's the rush? Yeah. <laughs> take, take it slow. Take it cool. No, I, I, I'm really looking forward to it. It's just been, you know, the usual, uh, the, the urgent pile is, 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 is being taken care of. And uh, it'll, it'll happen soon. But, yeah, ask me every week. I appreciate that. <laughs> so my, my, my new price point for drives, I've seen 1.5 terabytes for 150 bucks now. So, I do want to yeah. quickly mention that Western Digital 1.5 drives have been taken off the approved list by Data Robotics. So. Just- Really? Wow. Yeah. yeah okay. What happened? Yeah, though, well, it's, you know, it's typical when you have bleeding edge technology, sometimes it doesn't play well with others. And <laughs> sometimes it bleeds. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I'm, I'm afraid of those new one and a half because I've saw, I saw them out there, but there's been, there's been some problems. So I guess there the, has, large, yeah, I the larger the drive, the more likely it is to fail. Everybody knows that rule. I mean, anything over, that's, really, that's anything kind over. That's why you have a Drobo, right? Is, that's right. the yeah. beauty of it is. But anything over 500 gigs is you're, you're basically depending on error correction, you know, to um, you know to make sure that the the drives don't you know lose data. So it makes it all all the more important to uh, not depend on one single point of failure. You know, making sure that you've got a bunch of them. And of course, you know, Drobo makes it redundant uh, against uh, drive failures. Uh, you can um, you don't need to get all of the same drives at the you know being the same brand or the same size. You can just put in whatever you need, replace them as you need them. And uh, and that's a, that's a big advantage over something like RAID five, which would be what a lot of people do. And it's just it's just a lot less work. I think that's one of the it's just a lot easier. So uh, yeah. do you, do you guys think it makes sense just because you know if you buy four drives at the same time, maybe even from the same lot, that it makes sense to sort of you know space out your purchase a little or buy various brands just because uh, because of I think of, it I think it makes sense to not overbuy just because the prices are just continuing to drop so quickly yeah. that you know if you if you I mean if you you know buy what you need obviously but you know like me I've got I've still got two bays free and I really want to just get down to one bay free and then uh, you know I'll probably wait until all the Christmas specials start coming out there to put the last one in there I couldn't believe I bought I bought one terabyte drives last week for 119 each Yep. A lot of people. A lot of people sent us links when we talked about the this before. I do want to mention that the the you know the the cheapest drives you can get will work. So you know we were talking about particular drives, but any anything will work. I, I tend to buy mine in groups of five because I 
fill each Drobo with four, and then I put a fifth drive in the wrapper on top of the Drobo or next to the Drobo or underneath the Drobo so that if one of the drives fails, I've got a, a, a new drive ready to pop in to take its place. Now, yeah, uh, that, that's really a, a smart thing, Scott. I think that's one thing that people forget is to, to have that backup just in case, you know. That well, especially is, that now we're, we're in the $100 price range. I mean, drive storage is so cheap. I remember paying $819 for a 5 megabyte, not gigabyte, megabyte hard drive to go with my Mac SE10. Yeah, you were, you were, you were pulling out all the stops there. I was going nuts. <laughs> It was the biggest one you could get. What could I say? So now, if you wow. want to get a, if you want to get a twenty five percent off uh, the purchase of twenty five dollars, twenty five dollars, yeah. not percent. Sorry, yeah. I, I <laughs> it'd be nice if we could talk them into that, but I don't yeah. think they'd like. That would, yeah. that would be a problem. Uh, $25 off uh, the purchase of either the USB only or the second generation FireWire 800 USB ports. Go to it, it's drobo.com slash twip. Is that correct, Scott? That's correct. So drobo.com slash twip. And now we've got uh, a few a few questions that we can get to in our remaining time. Um, so uh, one question we have here from Gary, uh, I, I believe it's Patchell. He said, I just bought Mac, a Mac with Aperture. Uh, is there a place you can see what Aperture plugins are available? Or would Scott include his top 10 Aperture plugins? Does anyone know? Is there a definitive repository for Aperture plugins? Yes. Where is it? <laughs> it's, um, I'm going to have to give the link to our show notes producers, but I believe it's at apple.com slash Aperture, and then there's a link from there to plugins. Great. But there's an entire, there's an entire list of all the plugins that at least Apple knows about uh, available on their site. My, my top 10 are, is pretty simple. Uh, the Nick software, you know, is like the top five, which, by the way, just got combined into a $299 kit instead of like 299 bucks a piece. Right. So that's pretty cool. And I also very much like the uh, Tiffin DFX plugin. Yeah, those are great. I think that is just a totally amazing product. Uh, I like that a, a great deal. And uh, so th- that, those are the ones that I use the most. Anything from Nick, I use the entire suite of Nick products. Well, of course, you know, I think that DV Garage's DP Matt is just, you know, stellar. Well, now, why would you think that? <laughs> <laughs> we make it. We make it. That has something to do with it. Uh, we have to t- make sure the, the, to tell everyone we make it, but we like it. It's a, it's a green screen removal plugin. I'm also, I'm, in, I'm just starting to test Hydra. They sent it to me a little while ago. Which This is the HDR plugin for Aperture, which I haven't, uh, um, yeah. you know, gotten to test. I'm very interested to see how well that turns out. Um, they sent it to me a little while ago, and I'm afraid I've been so busy it's been hard for me yeah. to sit down and shoot some brackets. So, um, so anyway, but uh, yeah, just just to answer uh, Gary's question on air, um, I checked out it's apple.com slash aperture slash resources, and there you can find plugged in. And there's another uh, website called apertureplugged.in.com that that really is dedicated to aperture plugins. Thank you, Steve. Also, well, we have a, our next question is uh, Nicole Young. She said, I have a question uh, and was wondering what your opinions are on the topic of lens repair. I was recently taking photos when all of a sudden the zoom on my Sigma 18 to uh, 50 2.8 just stopped working. Uh, I was able to push it back and forth manually for a few times, but then it just got stuck at 50 and wouldn't budge. Uh, have you guys ever had your lens re- lenses repaired? Um, I am uh, not sure if I have my warranty card anymore, so I might have to pay, but I'm wondering if it's worth it. Or if I should just save up for a new full-frame lens so when I upgrade my SLR, I can still use it. 
uh, she, uh, Nicole sends, uses a Nikon D 200. So, uh, any, um, any, uh, suggestions here? Have, have any of you, uh, sent your lens out to be fixed? Yeah, uh, I have. Yeah. Who, who hasn't dropped a lens ever? My son, my son pulled my, my camera off the counter. Oh, um, it's, it seems to be okay, but, uh-huh. uh, but I'm going to have to watch it carefully. You know, he's gotten to the age where he can climb up the side and grab, he just grabbed onto the, to the thing. So I may be in this boat yeah. soon too. So, so why is it when you drop a lens, it always drops in slow motion? I never, really <laughs> figured, I never figured out I'm that. I'm like, why can't it shoot that way? If it, if, it can, if it can go in slow motion. Yeah, exactly. So where have you got, how, how have you guys handled your lens repair? I I had uh, my mine was really more of a, a cleaning, but it was to the point of where I didn't want to use it because it made really bad grinding noises. It was after a trip to Morocco and out in the Sahara, and right. um, you know shooting a lot, and and it was. I think the key, the key issue. I sent mine off to to Canon to have it done. It was not cheap. Um, I, I think it was a couple hundred bucks. It was an expensive lens. It was a uh, the seventy to three hundred do, so like a thousand dollar lens. And um, I think that's really the issue, you know, is you got to look at the cost of what it would be to have it fixed or cleaned or whatever relative to the cost of the lens itself. So for me, you know, clearly it was like I didn't really have much choice. But, you know, if it was a cheaper lens, you can, I'm sure you can get an estimate for some of this. I think a lot of them have sort of a minimum charge for what it would be to do certain things. Yeah, I think you have to kind of um, uh, always best to send it back to the kind of authorized manufacturer uh, repair place, and usually they'll get you'll, you. You may have to pay a forty to fifty dollar estimate thing, and depending on the price of the lens, I mean, and and what your thoughts are. If you're really happy with it, you loved it this whole time, uh, you know, then you'll you'll see what the repair thing and and decide if it's worth it. It sounds. I, I'm not sure what this lens retails for or how long she's had it. It's out of repair or out of warranty, um, uh, you know, you really have to sort of uh, make that decision based on, you know, your kind of contentment with the piece of equipment, the the price it's going to cost you to, to fix, and whether or not, you know, if you fixed it, could you sell it and get your money back? Um, generally, on the, the higher-end uh, lenses at the authorized manufacturer repair places, they do a fantastic job, and you get it back. Uh, it's it's not like a, a car that's been in an accident, necessarily. It, it's sometimes better than it was uh, going in or when it was new. Scott, have you ever had your uh, lenses repaired? No, I just buy new ones. <laughs> oh man! You know, I'm afraid that I buy. I have a tendency. I've broken a couple lenses uh, for a variety of reasons, and uh, and I tend to follow Scott's thing. Where I'm always afraid after I send the lens in to be worked on, I'm just always afraid to get it back. You know, you know, it's, it's one of those things. Like I don't, I just don't know if it's going to be the same. I don't know if it's going to work yeah. well. I mean, for we have a film lens here, not a film lens, but a a big zoom lens for one of our cameras, and. That one's hard to replace. It's like thirty thousand dollars. So we send that one back in when it needs to be worked on. But, yeah. but, um, but the, uh, uh, but for the day to day stuff, I mean, for the little yeah. camera stuff, I have I've, I've broken a couple of them and I just replace them with something yeah. usually better. You know. And for for a lot of photographers, just uh, on, on another note, um, if you're not a professional, through your homeowner's policy, often um, your equipment might be covered for for loss or repair. So depending what it is and what the deductible is, it may or may not be worth uh, claiming it on insurance. I teach I teach a lot of workshops. I don't teach as much as I used to, but I've had many a lens dropped by students, and that's why God made insurance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Generally good all the way around. Okay, last question for today. Uh, this is from Ray Rosh- Rosher, um, and uh, he said um, he uh, 
he's looking for a light meter. So he said, um, he said, as I'm not sure which side of photography I want to get into, I'm doing everything at the moment. Uh, although I'm heading towards wildlife and portrait, could you recommend something, a decent all around light meter for port, the portrait side of photography? I have up to $400 to spend on a light meter. I was wondering what, what I should get. Um, uh, or should I save my pennies for, uh, for a good one? So, um, anyway, so what do you, uh, do you guys have any suggestions on light meters? Man, this is so easy. I wish all of our questions were this easy. <laughs> Let's just have this guy ask all our questions from now on. <laughs> the L358. Done, done, and done. That's all you need. It's both a high-end meter and in your budget. Oh, there you yeah, go. I've, I've got one of those, too. And, and you know what? The light meter uh, landscape is not what it used to be You know, a few years ago, obviously, with the film, with the disappearance of, of film. Uh, there aren't that many choices, but the Sekonic is is a is a great meter at a great price. So, and if you want to go portraiture in a studio, you can in, you can buy the the little module that will work with your pocket wizards and trigger your strobes right from the meter. It's so cool. It's just like something right out of Dick Tracy. For those of us who've been doing this stuff for a long time, thirty years ago, if you'd have told me that was going to happen, I would have said, "Nah." <laughs> Scott, do you still have a color meter, color temperature meter? No, that. Do? That's gone. Those have gone by the wayside. I just stick a white card in the scene and then click on the white balance button and aperture, and we call it good. Gotcha. Yeah. Ron, do you have a light meter? No, not personally. I mean, we have, I've had one uh, you know, at work and on set and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. So, Ron, yeah, you are handy. a light meter, aren't you? We just take Ron. We just take Ron out there, and he and he just yeah. goes. Uh, yeah, I just went to the scene. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely not as you know. You don't use them that much uh, these days with the, the sort of the instant feedback you get on you know, looking at the looking at the LCD. So it's much yeah, less of an issue. The in-camera meters are so good these days too, compared to the old days. I mean, thirty years ago. You know, the camera meters weren't that great, but now the in-camera meters are quite accurate. So, I mean, it's always nice to have a meter if you're in a portrait setting. If you're working with strobes, you really need to have a hand. Yeah, that's really the thing, because it's just too much of a pain to be running back and forth to the camera, seeing what you're getting, going back, you know, stand in, you know, if you get, that's the situation where you really still need a light meter. And I just don't do that kind of photography all that much. But you look cool when you're taking your reading, don't you? You know, like <laughs> did you did you do that with Carson? Did you take his Carson? Did that impress him? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. the, the video cameras were rolling, so you needed to have that meter just as a fashion accessory. We we could tell Carson was real impressed when he said, "This guy's supposed to be some kind of famous photographer." <laughs> <laughs> oh man! So there you have it. That is uh, our definitive definitive answer uh, for for your question. Now, if, if we didn't get to enough questions, don't worry. Next week, it's all Q and A. Hey, we're doing a Q and A next week, all day. Well, at least all show. You know, I don't know if it'll be all day. So, um, so anyway, so make sure to send your questions in. You can get, you can send them in at twipphoto.com. Uh, if you've got a question, uh, it's going to be uh, a Q and A for a lot of questions. We're going to get through next uh, next week. So definitely uh, send them in once again. Twipphoto.com. Uh, does anyone have a uh, tip for the week? Hmm. Mm, I kind of gave my tip about, hey, you know, if you've never been to a photographic exhibition, chances are there's one in your city or town. Look it up. Go there. See what happens. Maybe you'll be inspired. Maybe you'll, you'll see something that you could use uh, in your own work. Yeah, I think that that's, I mean, looking at other people's work, I think is really, uh, is just a great way. It, it, for me, I think a lot of times when I got into, when I, when I was really getting into 
um, advertising and stuff like that where I really won't need to find it. I, the way I kind of found something that I liked in a lot of ways was looking through a lot of other people's photos and just letting myself cut out, like not cut out at the, <laughs> at the museum. That's not, that's not a good idea. Um, <laughs> But uh, <laughs> you know, no wonder that security guy over at the San Francisco Museum of Art looks at you funny every time. I mean, I mean, every time I go in there with it, every time they see an X-Acto knife, I, you know, I have to. Run. <laughs> you know, that's all. That's all I'm saying. So the um, uh, but but I used to subscribe. One of my favorite magazines uh, uh, when I was uh, when I was just getting started in advertising was called Archive Magazine, and. You know, it's so funny. It's still available, but these guys do not believe in the internet, clearly, because you you can find it at like a Borders bookstore, but you can't find anything about it online. I don't even think you can find a website that talks about Archive Magazine, but it's a thick book of just all these ads, mostly photographic ads, but a lot of ads, and sometimes there's a couple of little articles about um, behind the scenes, and one of the things that I uh, that I loved about it is I would just cut out every photo that I liked. You know, and I had this huge scrapbook of photos that, for whatever reason, I don't know what it is. You know, I just like, I like that photo. And that's all that I needed. And I, or I like this ad. And I would cut those out. And um, for me, it was really easy. It, you know, I very quickly realized the kinds of things that I like, you know, when it comes to photography. And I think that had a huge impact on um, the way I shoot. You know, just seen, seen a lot, um, you know, in that, in that process. You know, it was just because uh, you know, it was all different photographers. It was all different looks and everything else. But, uh, you know, I, a lot, in a lot of ways, I kind of found, uh, you know, these are, the th- these are the impacts. And then, um, and then we you know, I moved on from there. But it, was, uh, but it was a good place to start. But I think definitely looking at other people's stuff is, is very useful. Yeah. Steve, Steve, where yeah. can – oh, go ahead. You were going to say something else? No, no, no I'm just going to say we're, we're all inspired by a lot of different things. And emulating what you like is, is really a good thing. And as you progress in your, your own photography, eventually you kind of make it your own. It, it becomes your, your unique vision. So it's, it's good to sort of look at the stuff that really kind of inspires you and then, then maybe go out and try and, uh, and do, do something similar. You know, as a starting point, we did that actually last week. With uh, we, we were really fascinated with what it would take to do a Jill Greenberg kind of look. Ah, and, interesting. Uh, yeah, and we had, I think we had thirteen light panels sp- spread out all all around uh, all around our subject to kind of figure out you know what that what that look you know is created by you know light wise. And is then, it of course, the lights, uh, Alex, or is it the post process? Because I, I she does some post processing, but it's it's a uh, you know she's keen you know from our. R&D. She seems to be keen, you know, from slightly behind, you know, on either side. So you have two large sources on, on either side, slightly behind the subject, um, pointed straight in. And then you have, um, you know, fills right around the camera lens. And then you also have a couple fills, uh, one behind the, you know, some, some, uh, some stuff behind the, the, the subject. And then one, one kind of uh, three quarters up down you know, pointed down, you know, on the kind of the forehead region. And, uh, but it was just interesting. And then, and then of course we were doing a shoot. So we kind of went that direction and then we kind of pulled back and changed it and moved it around and it became kind of our own thing after that. But it was, it was really interesting because we, you know, our, our, uh, our client, uh, wanted to have something that looked a little like that and we didn't want to go quite that far, but, um, you know, she definitely does some post-processing on it, but I think that there's also a certain, it was more the look of that lighting and, but, but, but it was a great exercise for us you know, to, uh, take a, you know, kind of deconstruct a look and, uh, and see what it, what it would take in the studio to do it and then, and then move on, like uh, adjust it to our own, our own tastes. Yeah. 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 That's huge. If you're able to sort of create, you know, what you see and then you can just adjust it to make it your own, which is, sounds like that's what you did. That's, that's great. A lot of fun. So, uh, Steve, where can people find you? 
Um, they can find me at, at stevesimonphoto.com. And, uh, you know, just this week I, I posted some new images. I was out on election night in Harlem, which was oh really gosh. kind of a, an amazing place to, to be for election night. So I, I posted some images uh, up uh, on the site there. And also uh, twitter.com. I love Twittering. Thanks, uh, Ron, very much. <laughs> I'm, I've got a Twitter problem. I think about it night and day. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm always uh, looking to get more people uh, to follow. And I, I keep my updates a little bit uh, to a minimum, and I generally keep them photographically uh, related. So, uh, and also this weekend, I'm doing a, a workshop with Vince Lafaray, although by the time this gets out, I guess the workshop would have been a complete success. <laughs> so, hopefully. Very good. Scott, where can people find you? Uh, on the Twitter, it's Scott Bourne, of course. And then I hang out on our blog at TwitPhoto. And uh, if you're interested, uh, I think there might be one opening left for my Bolske workshop, private workshop, uh, coming up in three weeks. And then I have one opening left with Arthur Morris down in southwest Florida on valentine's week we're going to do five days five locations incredible incredible bird photography opportunity with three teachers myself Artie, and uh, a fellow who's going to teach photoshop it's a pretty cool workshop so that's that's what i'm doing and ron where can people find you um i'm on the twitter you know, Steve, the first, uh, the first thing to do for dealing with the Twitter problem is to admit you have it, so that's good. <laughs> I'm, I'm Ron Brinkman, with two N's, uh, or digital, digitalcomposting.com is my blog. I've actually put up, I put up some election night stuff, too. There was a big sort of spontaneous parade in, uh, in Seattle that formed that I wandered around in the midst of, too, so that was, that was a lot of fun. I have to admit, from a photographic point of view, I I just was I I ended up walking around San Francisco with my uh, son on my shoulders, which was fun. And um, but the uh, I I there was part of me that really was like, oh, I should have brought my camera, <laughs> you know, because it was crazy. And those yeah. are the kind of things you. That's kind of one of the reasons you always want to have your camera with you. Is just uh, you, you don't know, have a little camera, insanity. Alex, like a, a a happy happy snap. You don't have one of those. You. <sighs> I'm, I'm, I, uh, I'm, I'm still in this indecision about what I want to get, and, and I'm, you know, I'm caught in indecision. You know, I, I was fine with my G9, and now I'm still like floating around, and I can't, I just can't decide. <laughs> I can't decide. I think I'm going to get the LX3. Uh, Scott's yeah, happy too. with it, and uh, so I'm, I'm probably going to order one of those in the next. Uh, I haven't even shot the thing in raw yet, and I love it. Yeah, mm, yeah, yeah. My, my yeah I'm kind of waiting for for Aperture to have the raw decode on it, but I may as well get it, I guess. I sold I sold a picture yesterday that I took from the LX3. I, I rarely sell pictures that come off compact cameras, but yeah, but so it paid for itself right there. I think it did. I think I'm also biding my time. I'm moving this weekend. I actually finished packing last night, and uh, and, and the uh, and every everything of course keeps on costing. It's a thousand dollars for that. It's another seven hundred dollars oh, for that. So I'm kind of waiting for the dust to settle now before. Alex, I, you, you know you know I would help you move, but I'm I'm busy this weekend. You know I, I've decided I've grown up. <laughs> I've grown up to a point where I uh, yeah I've grown up to a point now where I don't even think about it. I. I'm getting everything into boxes, and then we call someone, and then they show up, and then the stuff disappears, and then it appears where it's supposed to be. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure the I'm sure the pizza is going to be delicious, but damn it, I'm I'm just busy. <laughs> Busy this weekend. I, I, I talked. I told Carlita that I, I said, you know, we could, you know, maybe we could think about just, just, uh, uh, you know, having some friends and we can buy some pizza. And she was like, no. 
No, <laughs> I'm surprised you don't just you know tell the pixel core that that's their job for the day. Yeah, no, no, you can't. We're <laughs> getting a little too smart for that, Ron. <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> About the thirteenth time they moved Alex or painted his house, they realized this wasn't really. Well, you know, this is the first time I've moved where I had where I needed more, you know I had this big rule for years that I wouldn't um, I wouldn't keep more stuff than what would fit in my Beamer. And uh, it was a little Beamer, too. It wasn't like a big one or anything. And uh, so this is the first time I've moved with a lot of stuff. It's really a pain in the neck. So it's this thing with furniture, you know, my, that my wife insisted on having is furniture. You got a wife. You got a kid. Welcome to the real world. <sighs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> anyway, so uh, until next week, you can put that lens cap right back on. 